to Let's Draws for a Minute, the podcast which took a deep dive into Steven Spielberg's 1975 masterpiece and is now setting sail into uncharted waters to discover the world beyond Jaws. I'm your co-host, MJ Smith, and uh, I am joined by a guest this week, and we will we will introduce her in a moment, but uh, it's just me as far as your co-hosts go this week. Um, Sarah had a last minute uh, thing come up, so... Yeah, just just me and uh, and our, our our guest, returning guest, Katie Doe is back. Katie, welcome back. Hi, MJ. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, you're here to talk about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. The uh, the well, at the time uh, considered final installment of the Indiana Jones trilogy, and the last one for 19 years. Um, it. It was released in 1989, but it takes place in 1938, and it follows um, Indiana Jones once again on a on a globe trotting adventure this time. So last time we were contained to one area, and uh, this time he's on the quest for the Holy Grail, um, which is was his father's life's work, and along the way has to fight Nazis and endure double crosses and triple crosses and. Uh, actual crosses and um he also it brings his dad along for the adventure who's played by uh sean connery um the film also has uh denholm elliott returning as marcus brody and uh john reese davies returning as sala in this sort of it's weird to say throwback but i guess it was eight years at this point the sort of throwback to the the original formula that made everyone fall in love with um with Indiana Jones in the first place in this sort of travel by map, you know, rollicking adventure with different locales and things like that. Um, the film won an Oscar. I don't remember how many it was nominated for, but it won best sound. Um, I forgot to pull up the Wikipedia page before we started recording because it's kind of a, kind of a wacky day. All right. Um, let's see. Yeah, best sound effects. It also received nominations for best original score, and best sound. Uh, and Connery got a Golden Globe nomination for best supporting actor. So that was its awards sort of, sort of run. Um, yeah, uh, Katie, wh- uh, what 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 brought you to uh, to Last Crusade? Uh, just Indiana Jones. It's fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, like yeah, it's like. It's a retread of the original Raiders formula, but I don't mind that. Like, Temple of Doom was so really darkly disturbing, and I think they knew it, too. They knew they had to get back to this kind of original formula that the audience loved to really kind of bring those viewers back, and they do it really well, and they kind of and they expand on it. They make it even better. Um, Raiders was... It feels grittier. This feels a little more polished, but Raiders is fantastic. Mm. I, I waffle back and forth between this and Raiders being my favorite of the, the series. Um, 
but it's very polished. It brings back, you know, Indy fights the Nazis, there's horse chases, there's gunfights, there's physical chases. Um, and it expands on a lot of the character work, which I really enjoy as well, because, mm-hmm. you know, Harrison Ford and Sean Connery are just so great together, and it's really just a joy to watch, and I love it. Yeah, pretty good movie. Um, this is probably my favorite of the Indiana Jones films, uh, especially watching it this last week. It it just really, it really shines. It's such an easy movie to watch. Um, and it gets a lot of stuff done. It's only two hours and six minutes, and it feels like, this is going to sound stupid, I guess, but it, it feels like a whole movie. Like, it feels like a lot of things happen from beginning to end because you're always, like, there's always something interesting happening in the movie. Like, it just, it pushes forward really, really well and keeps the momentum of its story going, but it also, I think you hit the nail on the head, it's really polished because they've been writing these characters for the better part of the 80s now and so they know who these characters are they have very well defined voices um they know the situations they would be in and you know spielberg's just grown as a filmmaker over this time as well you know it's it it was funny while i was watching this movie i was i was like wow this is kind of spielberg at the height of his powers and then i remembered uh no it's not we are four years away from jurassic park and uh to just think about how polished and well made and and man this movie looks good uh this is and then to know that he can like even top that going forward and arguably maybe did a couple other times for depending on the person and uh it's it's yeah it's really well done it was also the highest grossing film of 1989 to beat out batman so, oh wow that's impressive yep yep uh also 1989 had indiana jones batman back to the future 2 uh look who's talking sadly relevant with the passing chrissy alley uh dead poet society little mermaid lethal weapon 2 honey i shrunk the kids ghostbusters 2 and born on the fourth of july so there was a lot of like pretty relevant <laughs> movies that came out that year um you know i i know as far as the 80s goes 1982 gets a lot of the uh best movie summer ever type of thing because you had i think terminator and tron and the thing and um all that but i feel like 1989 kind of gave us the blueprint of where blockbuster filmmaking was going to go for the foreseeable future very much at least into the 90s and early 2000s and i think last crusade is just a part of that yeah that list you just read off was amazing I didn't realize like all that had happened to that one short year. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, but I would, I would put this one as the best, best of the bunch that year. Um, yeah. Like you said, it just, yeah. it just looks amazing. And it seems like Spiel, uh, like all the film, all the people involved were like really invested in this one. Cause there's kind mm-hmm. of, you know, famously Spielberg was saying like for Temple of Doom, he kind of like said, Oh, he was just, he was just the director for it. He wasn't really that invested in the story, but this one, you can tell that, you know, everyone is like really, really trying to make this a fantastic film with the writing and the, just all the location work and just everyone is just just really putting their all for this and it yeah and it shows yeah it made me um i didn't do the uh the math on how long they shot it over oh no i'm not sure um 
but it looks like they it started on May 16th, 1988 and finished in September. <laughs> that sucks. That's such a long shoot. Wow. <laughs> um but yeah, I mean they shot in Spain and uh Germany and England and the uh the u.s yeah so they shot in like four or five different locations they shot that opening in in utah um <clears throat> and, and so and jordan they were... too they had to go to petra to oh yeah to that's right yeah and yeah yeah and 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 jordan uh yeah this this movie feels like the studio was like you can do whatever you want they just cut him a blank check essentially because of the successes of of uh the first two um and it paid off really well it just you see i feel like you see every dollar they spent on screen oh definitely like you said like it's it's such a watchable movie like not not in a bad way in a very good way you know it's you it holds your attention and it's just it's a joy to a joy to experience yeah um it's shot by douglas locomb who also shot the other two raiders movies so obviously he knows how to play in this world um and what to do to to you know we talked about this on the temple of doom episode but they just the way they light harrison ford in these movies is so hero-y like it just it just it just feels like he's the hero like you know who he is you know what he stands for you know what his values are despite them kind of backtracking on what his morals were in temple of doom but we'll, we'll get to that get to that uh and every like every decision just serves the fact that this is a big popcorn movie i think more than any other spielberg movie we've watched up to this point it just solidifies him as the king of the 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 blockbuster essentially because it hits that perfect balance between character which we have obviously in jaws and not to say that jaws is devoid of set pieces whatsoever but the set pieces in this movie are so much more elaborate than anything that happens in jaws and that just comes from you know almost 20 years removed from that movie at this point so it it just comes from that experience of of learning and understanding how to put together this like very exciting sequence of events that sort of snowball into this usually like climactic uh moment yeah i mean it it definitely harkens back to those you know those action serials that george mm -hmm. lucas was trying to replicate and you know they watched when they were younger and like it's an action serial it's a western it's it's got like all the all the ingredients really just like a rollicking fun movie yeah have you speaking of it being a western uh have you have you seen the fablemans yet i haven't yet no okay i'd like to um uh, yeah it wow this movie it, it, it's so wild watching this movie post fablemans um i didn't think it would be this movie immediately that would um that would do that but and sort of no spoilers i i guess uh although this is a very real story that he's talked about in several interviews um the so he met john ford when he was a teenager and john ford obviously one of the arguably the most famous western director of all time 
and there's this pretty famous story for Spielberg nerds about John Ford meeting him meeting John Ford as a teenager and John Ford like telling him to go over to the paintings on his wall and describe what he was seeing and he says like oh you know here I see like a cowboy and a Native American etc etc and John Ford goes no where's the horizon in this shot or in this painting and he says oh it's down here in the lower third at the bottom and he goes good now go over to this other painting he goes what do you see in this painting Spielberg goes, oh, I see a cowboy and an Indian over here. And John Ford goes, no, where's the horizon? He goes, oh, it's in this top third. And John Ford says, yeah, okay. So when the horizon is in the middle, it's boring as shit. When it's at the bottom or the top, it's interesting. Oh, wow, if you can really figure cool. that out, if you can figure that out, maybe you'll be a halfway decent picture maker someday. Now get the fuck out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. uh that scene verbatim plays out in the fablemans and uh i kind of knew it was coming once it got into that area because i've heard him tell that story of like three or four different interviews and there are so many shots where i was like the horizons at the bottom the horizons at the top especially the last scene with them riding the four the four uh guys riding off into the sunset yeah the horizons at the very bottom of that frame. Yep. And I just, I couldn't help but think about that story and also the scene in, in the Fablemans, but also that entire opening was shot in Utah. Uh, and it, you know, part of the stuff, th this stuff is in the trailer uh, for the Fablemans. So I don't think I'm spoiling it. Part of it is that Spielberg was in the Boy Scouts and the movie that kind of made him fall in love with movies that we see him watching in the trailer and the, this is the opening scene of the Fablemans as well is uh, The Greatest Show on Earth, which is about a, a, a heist mm -hmm. of the, Bar the Barnum and Bailey circus train. Yep. So it just in the beginning, we get <laughs> locations where John Ford shot, Boy Scouts, father and son dynamics with a, a father that he thinks doesn't understand him, and a circus train. <laughs> Yeah, that's got it all covered. That's incredible. Yeah, I, yeah. I was like, oh, that's the fable dance right there. Like you can <laughs> show them this this one sequence. Um, what did you think about that uh, uh, opening scene with you know River Phoenix playing young Indy? I thought it was fun. I I kind of go back and forth between like it's a little too like Indiana Jones has his origins like all at this one point, but it's but it's <laughs> yeah. so much fun though. Like it's. I can't really like fault fault it for that because um, it is great to watch and you see oh, oh there's the scar from the whip and there's why that's why he's afraid of snakes and this is why he wears the hat and I mean it's just it's fun it's short and it yeah. it does offer a nice segue into because you have to get into introducing his father in the beginning or else you're not really going to relate later so when he has the the cross and he goes you know back home um, you do need that scene. And I do enjoy the segue into, you know, like the 26 or whatever years later on the boat. So I think it works. I think it works fine. And it, it's another part of an adventure. It's, it's fun to watch. Yeah, I think uh, I think Spielberg is the only person who could pull this off. <laughs> um, I think it's very on the nose. We learn everything we've ever <laughs> known about the character in like 10 minutes. And um, the other thing, too, is like. I, you know, 
weird dudes on the internet like to scream about Mary Sue's in movies right now, but like this kid's good at everything immediately. <laughs> well, he's a Boy Scout. Oh. Yeah, yeah, That'd always be, be prepared, right? <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I I like it. Um, I do think it works, but at the same time, like I don't know that we needed an origin for the real scar that Harrison Ford has on his chin. Yeah, like you don't you don't need to go that far. It's fine. Also, I feel like letting the audience kind of write their own backstory for that scar uh, is maybe slightly more interesting. But that's the only small detail I have, like a quibble with in that sequence yeah um i think it works really well it's very exciting it is and you can definitely see like the the i'm actually not sure what his name is the original archaeologist that he that is stealing Mm. the cross Mm -hmm. you can kind of see you know he's dressed like indiana jones Mm -hmm. dresses later you can see the the origins of that um i did i did kind of find it funny though like indy is so adamant that you know, they shouldn't keep the cross. It should be in a museum. But then, you know, like you were saying, like Temple of Doom doesn't really have that sentiment. Well, Temple of Doom, Temple of Doom, he's all fortune and glory. Exactly, right? yeah. Like that's... But, but here, he's like, oh, that should be in a museum. It's, you know, it's history. Yeah. So it's just, that part kind of hits a little weird, but, but it works. It's fine. Yeah, it's his... Uh... It's 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 a total walking back of sort of what the character stood for in Temple of Doom and I think the thing is franchise filmmaking as we know it today was pretty new in the 80s especially like I feel like it's a really big ask in of an audience to say okay we did one movie with this character now for the next one, we're going to go to before the events of this first movie. And then in the third one, we're going to go to after the events of the first movie. And I don't think we had, one, we obviously we didn't have the internet. But two, we just did not have the sort of like pop culture grammar for that yet. Um, I am sort of speaking out of turn here uh, in that I was not really alive. And so the only one of these I was alive for was the third one, um, which came out two days before my first birthday. So <laughs> um, I, I had no awareness of this whatsoever. But I feel like, to me, franchise filmmaking kind of starts with Star Wars in 1977. So by the time, like, it's less than 10 years um, by the time we get to Temple of Doom. So I think a lot of people might have been confused about, like, well, this guy was such a noble, you know, honorable type of guy who just wanted to preserve history in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, what happened to him in Temple of Doom? The only mention of it really being before Raiders is the title card at the beginning that says, like, 1935 or whatever. So I think a lot of people might have missed that detail and might have been confused oh, about yeah. why why he was uh why he was so different and selfish so then they have to kind of walk it back and and sort of re like redo the character from the get-go uh in this one and so now it just like it settles into the, the sort of like i would say arguably the most famous line from any indiana jones movie which is like it belongs in a museum <laughs> and uh to do that, to take it to when he was a kid, just shows the audience like, "Hey, he's always been this guy." Sorry about the last one. It kind of, it kind of feels like an, an apology for that. 
A little bit, yeah. And also, you know, I don't think these were meant to be like strict progression. It's like, you know, we're taking mm-hmm. the characters and they have this adventure and then the characters have this adventure. It's not really meant to be like one continuous story. So, and they're, you know, they're many years apart. And like you said, you wouldn't even have noticed the the time period if you hadn't looked at the date card. And I really only noticed it this time watching for the, the podcast that after watching and listening to the Temple of Doom episode and watching that again and then watching this so close afterwards, that's the only mm-hmm. time I picked up on it. So, Yeah. Um, speaking of the character, I, you know, I'm well documented as this is the American James Bond and the trailer for Indy 5 just came out. Yeah. I don't know if you saw it. I did. Um, uh, it looks okay. <laughs> um... uh, I like James Mangold. I think James Mangold has done uh, very interesting things with an aging hero before, with Logan. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see the first non-Spielberg-directed Indiana Jones movie. All that said, I think we should be on our fourth or fifth actor playing Indiana Jones by now. (laughs) Um, And uh, I think that this film kind of does a disservice if they ever wanted to do a recast of the character a la James Bond the way he is the sort of American Bond analog in that it gives him a lot of backstory and a lot of moments with his father and his family okay I'm of the opposite I don't think I think it should have ended with this movie and that should have been it no recasting Mm. no nothing it doesn't need to be a franchise Indiana Jones is three movies. It's fun. That's it. Done. Harrison mm-hmm. Ford only ever. <laughs> so that's my viewpoint. But you know, since yeah. we, we obviously do have two two new movies, so yeah, it does kind of muddle things a bit. But yeah, well, I think I think yeah, that's the thing, right? I don't necessarily care either way if they had made more or not. But if I think going forward, if they were going to make more, they should have just James Bonded it, like just recast the character, <laughs> like. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I I guess up to up, I I guess Harrison could have probably played the character through the '90s, but once you get into like 19 years after, and now what, 15 years after that, like ugh, this is a big ask to to say like, hey, follow this 80 year old guy on a on a <laughs> globe trotting adventure. Like, I, shouldn't shouldn't he be at home? Like, he can re- he can retire. It's fine. He probably has tenure. You know, he can. He's done. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, although this film establishes him as the worst history or the worst <laughs> professor in history, he's pretty bad. Yeah. Um. He 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 just is constantly leaving his job. His poor secretary is like, "Hey, all this stuff needs to be graded," and his students are just obsessed with him. And uh, he doesn't really do anything about that either. No, they probably can't graduate. They're you know they don't have grades in. They're like stuck at school. You know. Yep, and so he just, what does he do? He just pops on his hat and sneaks out the window for another globetrotting adventure. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't even tell Marcus originally. He's just like, I'm leaving. I'm yep, done. Um, yeah, this film has uh, a more extended part for, for Marcus, which I really like. Actually, obviously, I like Denholm Elliott as the character, but... I really like his little side adventure that he goes on with Sala where he just <laughs> <laughs> he's just kind of bumbling and so not a field guy the way that Indy is. See that 
that is like one of my nitpicks. Like they made him in parts, they made him so idiotic. But that, mm. you know, in Raiders, he was really on the ball. Even at the beginning of this one, he's like serious. He knows what's going on. Just mm-hmm. some of the little humor goofiness with Marcus just doesn't really hit with me. Yeah. Because he goes, ba- he goes back and forth. But. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of jokes in this movie. And I think for the most part, they work. I think this is Spielberg's funniest movie as far as the timeline of the podcast. I actually think Fableman's is his funniest movie overall. Um, but uh, to like the point, the movies we watch for the podcast, I think there's a lot of really good jokes in this movie in a way that like jokes haven't landed for Spielberg kind of historically. Yeah, there's a lot of good humor. And it's like setups and payoffs too. That's not just, you know, one-off mm. jokes or kind of things. But uh-huh. yeah, yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah, it just gets yeah. a little bit too goofy for me sometimes. But that's a small, yeah. small nitpick. Yeah, I can see that. It... Uh... I'm fine with it because it doesn't do the sort of like 80s cartoon like boy yoing noises that happen <laughs> like during the Temple of Doom dinner scene and and stuff like that. Like that's real cartoony to yeah. me. And this sort of takes a step back and the humor feels more in step with sort of what would happen in those situations rather than just like, oh, like, you know, a sort of dog and pony show yeah. of... of Hey, this is goofy. Here's a goofy sound effect. <laughs> it's really just with Marcus because that you know he has been shown to have been like pretty intelligent and on the ball mm-hmm. at other times, but so it's just when like some really you know idiotic things happen to him and he can't really handle the situation. Like he's wandering, yeah. through, wandering through the market. He doesn't know where he's going. He has no idea. Like that just that just hit kind of hit kind of oddly. It's funny, but yeah, which leads into my theory since we're talking about. Brody, is this Martin Brody's father? <laughs> I don't know. Is he? I think yes. The reason I think that is because Brody's the right age. Martin Brody is the right age to be born in the 1930s or 40s. Okay. Uh, and I looked it up because I was like, where is the college? Oh, it's like definitely New England somewhere, right? Like Massachusetts, yes, Connecticut it's in, somewhere. It's in Connecticut, yeah. Okay, um, it, yeah. It looks like it would be. It, yep. Uh, I forget the name of it. It's named after... Because uh, they're close to New York City, because that's where uh, mm-hmm. Donovan is. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Marshall College, which is named after Frank Marshall, mm-hmm. not the actual Marshall um, College. But... Uh, so it's the right area of the country, and I don't know if there's mention of Marcus Brody having a wife, uh, but Martin Brody is, you know, like later 30s, early 40s by the time we meet him, which would put him born sometime in the 1930s or early 1940s, which is when these films take place. So I think I think that this is... Uh, Martin Brody's dad. Okay, we'll go with that. Yep, that's that's my that's, that's my theory. And that's I'm a pretty to it. that's a pretty deep connection, but yeah, we can go with that. Yeah, I mean, we already have confirmation that you know Star Wars exists in the. Uh, o n e t. In well, uh, Indiana Jones, um, C three PO and R two D two are some of the hieroglyphs in <laughs> in the in the temple or in the the. Spot with the the the, 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 the well staff. Of souls. 
The Well of Souls. Yeah, The Well of Souls. That's what it's okay. called. Um, so, Ancient Aliens confirmed, and they were R2-D2 and C-3PO. <laughs> it is fun uh, to see them in that. Well, Star Wars did happen a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yep, so. yep, yep. Yep. Okay. So, yeah. So, it's all, it's all connected. It's all connected. <laughs> uh, and, well, we have Indiana the dog in this as well. That was uh, mm. George Lucas's actual dog. Not the dog in the film, but he had a dog. A Malibu, named Indiana? Named Indiana, yep. Oh, okay. And that is where um, the inspiration for Chewbacca came from. His big, fluffy, Malamute dog. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I, li- I like that little uh, scene where you see the, the Malamute barking when Indy comes into the house in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then it doesn't, like, that doesn't pay off until the last scene of the movie yeah, either. Yeah, the very like, end. That's, yeah, it's like the last line <laughs> um, that, that happens uh, in the film. Yeah. Um, so before we get into the sort of Connery, Harrison Ford of it all, uh, what do you think about Elsa? Elsa. Um, I, li- I like her dynamic. Um, she kind of goes, she's really convincing in the beginning. You know, you don't, mm-hmm. you're not really, sus- well, I wasn't really suspecting her. Um, she gets a little wishy-washy at the end, I think. But I do like the dynamic. I kind of like that it's not a, like a romantic interest all the way through. Like we have the, the characters focused on like Indiana's dad, not Indian, you know, a love interest. So the love interest mm-hmm. is there, but that that goes away pretty fast. Um, so I, yeah, I like her. I think she works out. Yeah, she, um, you know, I think the ultimate, it, it's, it's weird thinking about this and sort of bond terms because i do think that this franchise is largely more respectful of of women than that <laughs> franchise is though that's not a high bar to clear <laughs> um and uh but when we see him being uh oh my god i did not realize this she is in uh the 2022 film rrr which i loved um anyway uh you know, the, the, we get one scene that kind of, it kind of made me laugh where he like grabs her by the throat and I was like, oh, he learned that from his dad. Um, but it's because he's very distrustful of her in this moment, right? Like it's it's motivated, right? He's not just... At, you're talking at the the rally? At the rally, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I can understand why he would do that. Yeah, yeah. It's I didn't have a problem with that. Than, yeah. Yeah, whereas like you know, in in James Bond, it's like, why did he do that? <laughs> like she didn't do anything. See, I don't, I don't um, really watch a lot of James Bond, so I don't have like the. Uh, the oh con- yeah, the frame of reference. Oh, he uh, just hits women kind of a lot, uh, which is unfortunate. Um, well, and also, I, yeah, yeah. Sean Connery has that famous interview with Barbara Walters where he's yeah. like, "Yeah, there's there's no problem slapping a woman." <laughs> um, so. Uh, yeah, not great on that front, and no. this franchise much better on that front. Um, and uh, yeah, so when it happens, it's it's the closest to like that sort of James Bond sort of sexism <laughs> that 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 happens. I think throughout the franchise up to this point. Um, it, but it's like you said, you understand why he would do that in this moment. He's yeah, I mean, furious, like, and rightly so. And she's an adversary. She's not. Yeah, he's not just randomly hitting a woman for no reason <laughs> yeah um, exactly exactly yeah so I yeah did, I but it just it, yeah it, it just it, it i think because of the it, because connery's his dad in this like i yeah. was just like oh I wonder where he picked that up from um and 
That said, though, I think that it's very funny to me as an in-joke to have Sean Connery playing Henry Ford Sr. Mm-hmm. Um, because these are essentially James Bond movies, which we've talked about a lot. And Sean Connery notably hated playing James Bond by the end because of all the drama with the, the Broccoli family, who were the producers, the producing family behind that franchise. Spielberg snuck in a way to get Sean Connery to return for one last <laughs> outing as Bond without actually naming him James Bond. Yep. <laughs> but it's, I mean, these they follow the Bond formula so closely that I... I almost wonder if he was just like, yeah, screw it, why not? <laughs> well, didn't he famously want to direct Bond? Connery? No, I'm sorry, Spielberg. Oh, yes, yeah. Spielberg wanted to make so a James I'm Bond sure, movie so I'm sure bad. that was in the back of his mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and then in, in Raiders especially is where you see him really take that formula and apply it to, to Indy, obviously, because it's the first one. But it's it's so clearly defined as, like, following that formula to a T mm-hmm. in the first one. And then, to, you know, bring in Sean Connery in this one, it just seals the deal on that in a way that like it's it's undeniable (laughs) the connection that he was he was trying to make um with that and all that to say sean connery is incredible in this movie Uh, yeah he's fantastic i love just he he and harrison ford together are just it's it's like you said it's incredible yeah, I know there's that famous bit of trivia that's like, oh, Sean Connery's only 10 years older than, than Harrison Ford, <laughs> uh, which is um, very, very funny. But they play so great as father-son. Like, they locked into that dynamic so, mm-hmm. so well and so, so easily. Like, it, it, it just fits them like a glove. Well, plus when you see in the beginning, like he's all buttoned up in his suit and his little bow tie, like it adds it adds to the age, so mm-hmm. it's very very believable. Yeah, uh, and they just like it's 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 interesting because there's the line where he says like, "What was my father doing out here? He's not a, like he's he's he doesn't do field work, mm-hmm. essentially." But then you see him and he's extremely capable. He yeah. As the movie progresses, he gets more and more comfortable with this adventuring, and he's you know thinking on his feet. He's he's definitely done this before. Yeah, and I think it's it's you know once again, Fableman's on the brain. I think it's Spielberg's parents' divorce has kind of been the through line that we've found throughout every movie that we've talked about on the show so far. And I think this is sort of the one where, and I think every, regardless of like what your family dynamic was growing up largely, um, you know, unless you were coming from a truly horrible circumstance, I think every child eventually hits this moment with their parents where they're like, oh, they lived a whole life before they knew me, like before I existed, you know, I and, and I don't know what that was. I don't yep. know what they did before I was around. I just know what they did while I was here. Right, when you're the center and, of attention. You don't really, yeah, You exactly. don't think about that. Yep. Exactly. And so I think this is sort of Spielberg having that realization through this film where it's just like, oh, our parents are like 
just people who, you know, were romantically involved, at least for a time, uh, or maybe until one of them passed away. But before that, they were their own people, and they lived their own lives, and they had their own experiences. And, you know, I think once you learn that, like, your parents can be very surprising um, in ways that you, you, like, you kind of put your parents in a box, right? And you're like, they do this. This is what they do. Mm-hmm. And then you see them, you can see them, like, especially as you get older, you see them, you see glimpses of who they used to be. And you're like, oh, that's not just who they were, right? Like, they weren't just mom and she did X or dad and he did X for a living, right? Like, mm-hmm. you see them and you go, oh, okay, this is this is kind of a more complete picture of who they are as a person because I'm also, like, an adult person now going through very similar struggles and, you know, uh, day-to-day life that they probably did. Yeah, you can relate a lot more. And, you know, plus with this, too, since Indy and Henry were pretty much just estranged for such a long time, too, it's mm-hmm. it's that added weight of reconnecting and, like, really understanding each other that I think makes this, like, really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And you see, like, in moments where, um, where Indy maybe feels like his back is against the rope, like, Henry steps up and has, like, a unique sort of solution like even even something as simple as scaring the birds with his umbrella yeah right yeah, like, Indy doesn't come to that conclusion but you see him realizing it that that look on his face it's like oh he's not just yeah. you know my dad that i have to take care of right now he's he's helping me yeah yeah and he has like he has this wide knowledge base of the grail in particular mm-hmm. um that it you know he, 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 yes, Indy is capable of figuring out and putting together clues himself, and he's proven himself very capable in that regard, too. But he has this base of knowledge that Indy just does not have because he's dedicated his life to this work. And so we see it kind of pay off. And, like, he can't, he cannot complete this adventure without the help of his father. Right. They both need each other. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And even when he's, like, when he thinks he's kidnapped in the castle... And he, show, he shows up, and Henry hits him. Yeah. And he's like, what are you doing? He goes, well, I thought you were one of them. Like, he's just, you can tell he's on guard, right? Like, he's not just bumbling around, like, getting captured. Like, he, he has motives for what he's doing. Right. He definitely is capable of doing this. He's, you know, he's not, like, a whip-cracking adventurer, but he certainly has a set of skills that allows him to, you know, survive the situation and to add to their escape. Like, you know, he's quoting Charlemagne, he's... But then when we see uh, them captured, like, Henry's back is against the wall, sort of. So he's just, he's he's kind of out of his element with this uh, this stuff going on. And so that's when Indy's like, oh, get my, my, my lucky charm, which is a lighter with a four-leaf clover on it, which I thought was cute. And, uh, you know, try to burn the ropes off. And you can see this sort of proud dad moment that Henry has where he's like, oh, like, wait to, like, think on yeah, your feet. Yeah, like, very, very like, good, yeah. Yeah, and, like, he he has this understanding of who his son has become as well. Like, you know, that that that, that respect and under, mutual understanding flows both ways in, mm-hmm. in this film in a really, really interesting but also very digestible, understandable way. Right, yeah, like, when, when they're escaping the, uh, <laughs> the plane, he's like, I think they're trying to kill us. And it's like, it happens to me all the time. So they're... They're getting to understand each other and kind of what their lives have been up until this point. Yeah. And (laughs) 
That scene is so great, too. He's like 11 o'clock and he's like, what happens yeah. at 11 o'clock? And just the, it ha, it, that part has, I think, my favorite line in the movie. It's just when he, is, yeah. he just solemnly says, well, I think they got us. I didn't just shoot the tail of the plane. No, no, it yeah. wasn't me. Yeah, that line really made me laugh this time. I don't think I've ever really connected on that joke for some reason. Like, it's it's such an obvious joke, but it's it's really funny. Well, you can see he's, uh, like, so ashamed, too, that it, he's, like, working through, like, how how would I get out of this? Oh, no, they got us. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's other people shooting guns at us. Right. Uh, that's, such a, that's such a good little joke that... Uh, it just It's so simple, but it, it works really, really well, which I think is the sort of baseline for these films. Like, there's nothing that, like, I don't want to say interesting, but there's nothing that novel about these films. Like, the character archetypes are all pretty stock character archetypes. The sort of arc of them is pretty stock adventure movie, but it's so well executed that it kind of doesn't matter. That they, Like, it, it, it almost is... The simplicity is what makes it work as well as it does. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Well, they they're building on that archetype that they they want people to have familiarity with it, and like you said, they just they do it better. Like the writing is fantastic. The just the way the whole film is put together, like it makes you want to watch it and want to enjoy it and have fun. And that's kind of mm-hmm. the point of these movies. It was the point of the ones that came before all the adventure serials. So doing that so perfectly this time is it's just a great example of of what they wanted to accomplish. Yeah, and I think that comes down to how well executed the technical aspects of the film are, right? Like, we just saw, in the year of recording this, we just saw Top Gun Maverick become a... I mean, it was a phenomenon. That movie was out forever and made all the money. And it's not a complicated movie at all. It's not even, like, really a war movie at all, Like <laughs> even though it takes place in the military... It is just like a very simple character story and the plot is literally two hours of the trench run in Star Wars. And <laughs> that's it. And it, everyone liked that movie. Like I have not talked to a single person who did not like yeah. that movie. And uh, it ran forever. And so I think it goes to show that even in 2022, like the simplest way of like making a movie with like a character who has like defining trait defining theme that goes along with that trait go right which is sort of what happens here like there's a lot of interesting archaeological stuff and history and all that but all that is decoration on these very simple character archetypes and a very simple father-son dynamic at the heart of it that is pretty much could be in any movie really um like what these characters come to know about each other you could accomplish that in a two-hour drama. You could accomplish that in, you know, a two-hour comedy, even. And they started from that base and then used this sort of adventure setting to kind of decorate it on the outside to make it this very fun, easy-to-watch, entertaining adventure film that kind of helps you maybe understand your parents a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And I think it's comforting, too, because you, you know these characters, you know the mm-hmm. general you know, set up for these kinds of films. So you're kind of just along for the ride. It's comforting that you already know, you know, kind of what you're in for, but you get to be surprised along the way as well. And I think that's like the the best of both things coming together. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing, too, is when it comes time to sort of put that aside and have a boat chase or a plane chase or, you know, essentially an escape room or a car chase on a horse, it is so well executed. It's, gosh, the set pieces in this movie are next level, even for this franchise, I feel like. They're fantastic. You get, like, every mode of transportation ever. Uh You have boats and cars and tanks and horses and planes and, like, they're all used... Whips, yeah. <laughs> blimps. blimps. Oh, blimps. Blimps, sorry. Yeah, the airship. Yeah. Um, yeah. Motorcycles. Yeah, you've got everything. Just, like, yeah. any any of the set piece you can name, it's, like, it's fantastic. The motorcycle chase through the woods, the boats in Venice. Like, that's really tense. And, like, the tank, the tank chase in the mm-hmm. desert is, like, one of my favorite all-time oh, gosh. sequences. That tank chase is so good. <laughs> so good. Um, it, that... that tank chase looks like the most dangerous thing to to film like i'm sure it was pretty well controlled but just the 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 sort of the sort of magic that spielberg brings to it makes it look so precarious to have filmed it and i don't you know obviously i think when we see characters going under the treads and stuff they didn't just yeet people under a real tank but the (laughs) it's so well like edited together and um motivated that it, it feels real in a very like almost uncomfortable way uh, some of the time a lot of it i mean it, yeah it's it's dangerous and i i always watch the horse work i had a horse so i'm like very hmm. into like all the horse scenes and harrison ford had a horse is like fantastic um but that's like kind of where the western comes in it's like a mm-hmm. it's like a stagecoach heist you know he's on a horse mm-hmm. but it's a tank instead um, yeah i just i love all the action they can get and you know, since he can ride really well, you don't get like cutaways to an actor like kind of riding out a barrel, pretending they're on a horse. Like it yeah. makes it feel a lot more real. Um, so I'm just kind of in awe of all of that and just how all those things fit together, like the little incidental things that happen as that scene yeah. goes along. Yeah, I, I think you touched on an important point that we haven't talked about in any of these, which is that Harrison Ford does a lot of his own stunts in these movies. A lot. I mean, he gets injured a lot too, but he does a lot of the stunts. Yeah. Yeah, and like you know, that scene where he's hanging off the 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 sort of exploded gun barrel or turret barrel, um, almost getting crushed up against the rocks, like it goes out of its way to show you that like that's him, like he's in full view of the camera, a lot of it his entire body, like you can't, you can tell that's Harrison Ford doing that, and there's this moment where the uh. <clears throat> the sort of strap he's hanging on to like flips up the the brim of the hat and like squishes it against his head and it's really for some reason that conveys so much danger to me to see the hat sort of get it does the same thing in temple of doom when the spike comes down and pushes it down towards yeah. his face where it's just like oh this feels dangerous yeah and like i said i'm sure it was fairly controlled as controlled as it could be but it really feels like harrison ford almost got crushed by those rocks almost there's a lot of dirt and rocks falling down on him but that Mm -hmm. so this is one of my other nitpicks that like takes me out of the scene momentarily like there's no way that strap of that bag could have gotten over that gun barrel to oh yeah to tread (laughs) i just i can't like i can't take that scene seriously (laughs) and then he jumps up like it's not it's not attached anymore like i don't it's yeah yeah that's the one the one like major nitpick I have about that whole scene, but I can forgive it. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the, the boat chase too is really like complicated. That scene where he's got, uh, 
the guy from the the Brotherhood of the Cruciform Sword against the propeller of the boat, like that feels really dangerous. It. I was trying to like really pick that apart last night, and like mm-hmm. it's kind of just happening. I can't really. They're on a boat getting shot by a propeller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know what the failsafe is. There. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was I was trying to do the same thing when I was watching it on. Saturday, I think, or Sunday morning when I watched it, I was just like, what the, how did they do this safely? Like, I can't imagine they would have just done this. I mean, I guess they did, but. Because you can't really see a green screen. Like, you can see it from the Mm -hmm. shot from the front and from behind the propeller. It's actually, it's actually happening. Yeah, well, in the green screen. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And the green screen is very obvious in this movie. Like, the reverse projection stuff they do in the plane is pretty obvious. It works really well because it makes it feel like, a, you know, serial, uh, adventure serial, but it's also very obvious. I think that's a feature, not a bug, though. Um, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, it, and uh, you know, it's sort of it's funny because I was thinking about it, and I'm pretty sure I haven't seen this movie in a lot of years, so I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. And I guess he doesn't have a claim on it, but. I think John Woo ripped off this scene for uh, the climax of Face Off, because I I'm pretty sure there's a moment of them on a speedboat that's getting like chopped up by a propeller and oh. they have like they're grappling, um, <clears throat> which I mean if you're gonna rip anyone off, Spielberg's a pretty good guy. That's, that's good too, <laughs> to, yeah. To, to rip off, like you sh- you should probably be doing that. Uh, <laughs> just wholesale uh, blanket blanket statement for everyone making films. Uh, if you if you want good action sequences, just kind of do what he he do what he did. He did it the best. And uh, at the same time, you know, I put this on Twitter that even the just people talking moments are really interesting looking. Mm-hmm. Like he just. <sighs> he just has this eye for blocking that is unmatched. I think just the, 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 the way he can. And if you guys go to my Twitter, you can see the screenshot that I posted of while I was watching it. But like Indy's in the foreground profile, Elsa's in the, in the, in like the, the mid ground, uh, sort of like kind of tilted towards him, but not quite profile. And then, um, Oh, what's his name? the the evil the evil british guy <laughs> um, Don, donovan who, donovan yeah donovan donovan's in the way back in like he's in the background sort of watching this interaction take place and i've been looking at that picture for <laughs> extended periods of time every day <laughs> trying to figure it out because it's a shot that basically has three focal points and it's not confusing or ugly. And I don't get it. Well, I guess he took John Ford's advice about that. You know, the rule of threes make it interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, that's pretty basic photography stuff, but it's just a funny way that... Yeah, know, any kind of design. I'm, I'm looking yeah. at the photo now. Yeah, I, it's incredible. It's, and the whole movie is filled with stuff like that. Like, the camera in this movie is so motivated and confident. I was just noticing that you know when they're in the library and he figures out the x the x marks the spot on the on the ground and he goes up the stairs that's all one shot i love that shot yeah so it's so good (laughs) it's so good but i was just like you don't 
you don't have to do this. You know what I mean? Like he, he didn't have to shoot it that way. Like he could have conveyed the same information with a cut there, but it's such a great dawning realization and moment of reveal mm-hmm. to the you audience. Get to, you get to discover it along with the character. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think few people understand that the way Spielberg does. Like it's, you know, Walter, Walter Chalk, uh, uh, he's a film critic here in, in Colorado. He didn't like the Fablemans for some reason. I don't know. I cannot wrap my head around not liking that movie, but that's neither here nor there. But <laughs> he did bring up a good point where he was like, I think Steven Spielberg might be the greatest technical filmmaker who ever lived. And I was just like, yeah. <laughs> watching watching Last Crusade this weekend with that tweet in mind, I was like, absolutely. Like mm-hmm. he, Just the, the, the way he sets up shots is... I, I just constantly find myself going like, what? How did you get there? Like, how did you... How did you figure out that's how you wanted to shoot this? Mm-hmm. It's wild. That brought to mind I, when they're uh, when they're in the blimp talking, they're having their discussion, um, Henry and Indy, and when the ship starts to turn, and just mm. the shadow goes across the table and across mm-hmm. Indy's face, and that that's how you know the ship is turning. I love that shot. Yeah, and you know it's it's it, Seth Rogen who's in the Fablemans. I was watching an interview with him, and he basically said he was like. I was like a parrot on Spielberg's shoulder when I wasn't <laughs> filming. Like he said, he was just like behind him watching him just work. learning. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, he was like, I'm never going to be in another Spielberg movie. So I might as well like use this as like selfishly use this as my own film school. Oh, and he was, he was saying that Spielberg is such a nerd about this stuff that he, he, he felt like he was bothering him with questions. But if he was, Spielberg did not let on that he was being annoyed by it because he answered every question completely enthusiastically about like, and he said his main question was just like, why'd you do that? What brought you to that conclusion? Why, why'd you decide to shoot it that way? Why'd you decide to block us this way? (laughs) Um, And he said, Spielberg explained every step of that process along the way. And he just was like absorbing it all. And I was like, yeah, I was like, I have no real interest in making films, but I would totally do that. Like I would absolutely do that. And, you know, obviously part of the same ilk. I saw a clip of an interview with Jonah Hill uh, on Stern and Stern was like, who's the best director you ever worked with? And uh, Jonah Hill immediately said, it's Martin Scorsese, <laughs> you know, cause he's, he's in Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. And he, he, he said, uh, it, you know, all directing is, is just constant problem solving and watching Scorsese work. Someone will come to him with a problem He'll close his eyes and then 10 seconds later have the perfect answer for it. He was like, I've never seen anyone make not just decisions that quickly, but the right decisions that quickly. And we've been talking about this with Spielberg's career in that he turned around Raiders pretty quick. I think it was like three or four months that they shot the movie in. And there's a lot of globe trotting in that too. Mm. And he was kind of, on his back foot a little bit with that movie because of what a flop uh i mean it made money but critically 1941 was and how expensive it was Mm -hmm. and so it forced him to sort of learn that on the fly decision making a lot better than he had because he had been given carte blanche because he was this golden boy when he came on the scene with jaws and so to sort of see you know i think most people mentioned spielberg and scorsese in the same breath to sort of see how he became this sort of decision 
maker uh, <laughs> decider um and uh, how he does it in in last crusade is it's really fascinating to watch especially on the heels of the sort of two historical epics that he did as well to sort of see how he brings those films which don't have a lot of action like there's not set pieces in color purple or there's some in empire of the sun but they're much more like motivated by the drama of the people involved which spielberg has done before like there's a lot of drama of the people involved in jaws to be sure but this the way he marries the two of those things together in this is like very seamless Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and he just I, i don't know to just really think about the decisions he makes shot to shot and the way he blocks, like even the way he blocks the beginning of the movie when it's just exposition dump of to get us to Venice, it's so interesting. It's it's it's. I mean, it's it's Hitchcock, right? Like that's the thing is you just you 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 can watch his movies, and if you have like a decent grasp of of not just film history but just like who his inspirations were, you can point to every shot in this movie and see how it was motivated by some other filmmaker that he looked up to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's I mean. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's not a slight by any stretch of the imagination. Like, that's all creating is, right? Is just looking at your inspirations and saying kind of like, how would they do this? And then sort of doing it the way they would do it, but also at the same time the way you would do it. Yeah, it's all building on something that came before, doing it mm-hmm. in a new way or doing it kind of unexpectedly. But yeah, you you can't create anything in a vacuum. So those inspirations are always going to come forth and... Yeah, you can definitely see, like you said, in this film. There's yeah, lot. I mean, it's 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 all iterative, right? Like yep. every everything in this movie is iterative. There's there's borderline nothing original <laughs> in this film besides the <laughs> the character they created, but they built that on the characters of like Gunga Din and the adventure serials. So like and James Bond, and so uh, it just it, but it doesn't matter either, you know. And uh, I don't know. It's not to say that I think that the sort of sequel, reboot, remake culture that we've cultivated is good by any stretch of the imagination. Like I don't want to, I don't want to confuse people. But I mean, even if you look at the works of Scorsese, like ninety percent of his stuff is an adaptation of something else or a remake of something else, like an adaptation of a book or a sequel to, not a sequel, but like a remake of a of a film that wasn't originally in English. Things like that, like. Mm-hmm. I don't, it, it, if you have a good enough filmmaker, it doesn't matter. Right. If the end product is creative and original to that, then there, there's no issue. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's, it's when you start doing these things by committee uh, that it loses any sort of point of view or focus. Like it, you know, this, I talk about this a lot, I think on, on my other podcast, which is like, the thing that this movie has going for for it is that it feels like someone's idea, right? There's a voice behind this movie. And it's a very clear voice. And yes, that voice is contributed to by everyone involved. Um, you know, Jeffrey Bohm wrote it. Uh, George Lucas and Menno Mayhez uh, did the story. You know, Lucas and Philip Kaufman created it. It's produced mm-hmm. by people. It stars people. They all bring their voice to it. But ultimately, like, auteur theory or whatever, it's Spielberg. It's a Spielberg movie. He's the one who's making the big high-level decisions of how this movie gets made and what they put in the film. 
Um, and it just feels like it. You know, you, f- you feel his fingerprints all over this film. And it makes for a better experience because it feels like someone came up with it. Right. Someone came up with it. Someone was attached to it. It's got a lot of heart in it, too, which is why you get so invested with the characters as they go along their journey. And I think it's not just like a rote, you know, another something churned out. This this film has like a lot of heart. It's got a lot of personality. Mm-hmm. And it has that that personal vision, I think. And like the personal, you know, backstory with Spielberg, too. I think with, you know, the absent father and everything. And the core, the Indy and Henry dynamic, I think, is the core, like really hard of the film. And I think that is just, it just makes it so much better. Yeah, I mean... I, and this is one of the reasons why I'm sort of interested to see where Indy 5 goes. Uh, Just because none of these people are involved. (laughs) But James Mangold strikes me as a filmmaker who wouldn't make a movie without a reason. Um, if that makes sense, he's not a director for hire, right? Like he makes, he makes movies that get nominated for best picture. Like he doesn't need to make Indiana Jones five. So there's a reason why he's doing this. And I think that as long as I can see that sort of point of view, it might be kind of interesting. I don't know if it'll be good, but it'll be kind of (laughs) interesting to sort of watch the film and pick apart. Okay. Well, what? What drew him to this project? Because Spielberg was supposed to direct this movie, and then he dropped out. And I, oh, okay. I don't know. I don't know why. Um, I, you know, <clears throat> a lot of people have their thoughts about the mouse and Lucasfilm under Kathleen Kennedy right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really know if that sort of creative differences is, is what happened, or why he decided not to to revisit the character. But James Mangold, you know, he made he made Logan, he made Walk the Line, he made Ford v Ferrari. He made a movie I'm a huge apologist for, which is Night and Day. Um, But all those movies sort of feel like only James Mangold could have made them. Even though that's not true, he puts enough of a stamp on it to where it's like, oh, I can kind of get where he's coming from. Mm -hmm. And they're like, they're independent stories too. It's like a Mm self-contained, it's not connected to other franchises and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And even the franchise work he has done, which is the Wolverine and Logan are so far removed from that larger X-Men thing. Like they're so their own movies that like they, they, they fit in that, you know, it's they're two superhero movies about a very famous superhero character, but they are largely disconnected from uh, the X-Men franchise. And then Logan's like on top of that rated R. So it, you know, he just, he, he's only doing that sort of franchise work if he can have control over it. It seems like to me, obviously Mm -hmm. I haven't done enough, but like, you know, he didn't come back after those two movies and do the rest of the X-Men movies, which kind of sucked. Like he did those two, which are two thirds good. And then one's really good. And, uh, that's what he did because that's the story he wanted to tell with those. He wanted to tell those two stories with those, that one specific character. And that's it. Mm-hmm. and I think because of that yes it's the fifth in a franchise that maybe should have stopped after three um, particularly if you were going to do the fourth one 19 years later and also make it awful yeah. um, 
<laughs> That's why I'm not like I wasn't keeping up with like all the stuff on Indie Five because I was just so mm. like disheartened. Yeah. With yeah, that with makes Indie sense. 4. But but maybe like maybe there's hope for it. Yeah, I mean I I don't know I think. I think the trailer was interesting at the very least. It doesn't look like 1969. It looks like it's still in the 40s. I think um, it's really hard, I think, to take Indy and, like, his getup and stuff and take him further and further away from, like, the 30s out yeah. in the desert. Like, he, that's where he fits to me. So it seems it's always kind of weird when you take him out of that situation. Yeah. So I'm kind of interested to see, like, as the years progress. Because it still shows him in his, you know, leather jacket and, you know, the hat and everything and... Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that though this, I mean, like you said, this film would be a perfect end point for the character. Um, <clears throat> and I wish it was. <laughs> yeah, man, it man. does. It's, I mean, they, they literally ride into the sunset and yeah, you know, the, uh, Indy and Henry have their reconciliation. They kind of come to like a new realization that they, they need each other and they're like back in each other's lives and they've talked it out. They've had this kind of revelation with, you know, they've actually held the Holy Grail and it performed some miracles right in front of them. So that's like not something that you easily come back from, I don't think. So they're connected in that way. Mm -hmm. um, they don't really have to do, or we don't have to see them do much anymore. Like I think it was a perfect end point. And yeah. kind of too, when you know, Indy found the Cross of Coronado as a as a counterpoint to Raiders when he returns from a, a trip to the college, he doesn't have the artifact he was looking for. This time he does. He completed mm -hmm. it. He found it. He was searching for it since he was what, like 15 years old. Mm -hmm. um, so that, I think that kind of like puts a nice ending on it too. Yeah. That's a really good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> wow. That's so cool. I'm glad they did that. Uh... I really only picked up on it this time. That I was like, really like, Oh, it, it worked this time he as a as a symbol for like this story doesn't really need to go any further yeah yeah and it yeah it clearly didn't <laughs> based on no. what we got later um <laughs> but i guess that's for that episode but this is i i just think it's sort of a perfect blockbuster movie um <clears throat> i think it's interesting that it came out the same year as back to the future 2 which uh I think Back to the Future 1 is a perfect kind of blockbuster script, and I think this is sort of a perfect kind of blockbuster script, and I think Back to the Future 2 is the perfect example of, like, a really messy sequel. Um, <laughs> and it's sort of it's sort of got this... It's, it's weird to kind of track the trajectory of those two franchises because I think Temple of Doom is pretty messy, too. Uh, but I really like this, and I really like Back to the Future Three. I don't know if that I don't know if that's a controversial opinion amongst Back to the Future fans, but I love that movie a lot, and it's sort of this similar thing where it sort of gets, even though it takes them into this wild, literally wild west, um, it takes them in this very like wild direction. I think it has more of an understanding and heart of what made Back to the Future One work rather than two does mm -hmm. and i, I think have to that... go ahead oh god i was gonna just say i have to admit i haven't seen any of the back to futures oh really one really no good. i know i need to i need to amend that but yeah um someday we're uh <clears throat> we're doing it for a patreon episode um, oh okay yeah all right yeah to watch it 
yeah it's sort of a i feel like if you were to like teach a class on blockbuster filmmaking or blockbuster script writing i would choose that script i think that'd be my number one with a bullet script uh to do if i were in charge of that class yeah it's it's really i mean i know it's a classic i just haven't gotten to it yeah structurally it's just like it's it's kind of amazing like it's it's wild that it that that it's as good as it is um but i think they have very similar trajectories which is interesting because spielberg produced the back of the future franchise um and i think you can sort of see him coming into his own as a producer as well right like he's produced some of the greatest films of all time uh and also the goonies and uh uh <laughs> You know, but I think he, he sort of earned this reputation as, you know, someone who who does produce projects that are very in line with the sort of movies he makes, particularly in the 80s, right? He produces Gremlins and Poltergeist, which is a Spielberg movie that gets really scary at the end. And That's, um, that's why I've not seen it. Yeah, well, we're doing that for Patreon, too. Um, I'm not watching that one. <laughs> and uh, Back to the Future and Goonies, uh, for better or for worse. But then, it's also really interesting because then he produces um, the Transformers franchise later in his career. And it's just like, oh, what happened really? there, bud? Oh, yeah. I did not realize that. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a producer, I think, on all five of them. <laughs> um, which is unfortunate. <laughs> uh, but... Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is the sort of idyllic Spielberg blockbuster movie, right? Like, as far as big action set pieces go and charismatic, comparing, compelling characters, it's nothing we haven't seen in Jaws, but it's so, like, the budget is better, the effects are better. It's so more. much bigger, yeah. Yeah, it's bigger, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's part of this larger connected story, right? That, that, I mean, you know, the films are pretty episodic, but it's part of, it's part three in a franchise, which, you know, Jaws had its own franchise, but Spielberg was not involved with any of that. (laughs) Um, So, so those are sort of their own, their own thing. They're disconnected from the original. And these are like the same point of view for all three of these films. And it's the first time we've seen Spielberg take on a franchise. And I think, he earns this reputation that he is a franchise filmmaker, but he's only made one, two, three, four sequels, I think. So Temple of Doom, Last Crusade, Lost World, and Crystal Skull. That's it, really? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. But the thing is, he is so good at making franchises, right? Like, or, or films that not, well, uh, well, Kingdom of Skull, Crystal Skull ex- accepted. He's very good at making films that feel like they're part of a larger story. Yes. Um, yeah, and I think that's what sort of makes him, makes us think that he's done all these franchises. Like he's the franchise filmmaking guy, but he's only really ever been involved with two total franchises. Um, unless you want to count Jaws, then three, but he was so uninvolved with the other three Jaws movies that I don't count that. Yeah, I wouldn't count him. Um, so it just, it's, and I think it's because, honestly, I think it's because we associate 
franchise movies with the sort of movie-based theme park rides we see, and we get all of them <laughs> uh, from Spielberg movies, right? Like, E.T. doesn't have a sequel, but it feels like it does, or it feels like it could. Um, but it has a theme park ride. Jurassic Park had a theme park ride uh, that turned into Jurassic World, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, Indiana Jones has a theme park ride. Uh, Jaws had a theme park ride. And that's, we sort of associate that with like movies that have franchises, but they're kind of not. Like even, even Jurassic Park, he only directed the one sequel to it. After that, he just became a producer. So yeah, that was it. it it, you know, he's he's pretty light on franchises, but he's such a figurehead of, I think, people's childhood that uh, it feels like he made all these movies in these these beloved franchises when he really didn't. Well, because they're so blockbustery too. Like, he's, mm-hmm. he's, like, synonymous with, like, the blockbuster in a good way, not, yeah. you know, quality blockbusters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, blockbusters that are worth watching. That feel, you know, it feels big and epic, but I think this one, too, I think the charm of it is that it feels, like, really small, too. Like, you have those just conversations, like, really intimate moments as well between the Mm -hmm. characters, which you need. You can't just be, like, running at breakneck speed, just action, action, with no meaning behind it. So that's why I think this one works so well. Yeah, well, and and like I had said, too, like, even those moments, though, are shot so, like, slick. Like they're mm-hmm. they're 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 shot so well and and blocked out so well that even those moments feel like big action scenes, even though it's just people in rooms talking. Yeah, they look and, amazing. Yeah, they look incredible. And he's trans he's he's taken that throughout his career. Like Fableman's obviously, it's a two and a half hour movie of people talking. That's it. That's the <laughs> whole movie. It's just two and a half hours of people talking in rooms, sometimes outside, but. It's so motivated and so well blocked out that it it doesn't matter, right? Like, it, you know, it, it it's still just so much more interesting to look at than, like, 90% of the stuff that comes out today. Like, I saw someone, someone I follow on Twitter was the only person in their showing of the Fablemans, much like I was, uh, last night. And they took a picture of the screen while they were watching the movie, which I'm okay with because they were in there alone. And the one shot was so well blocked out that I was just like, I didn't even notice that you become like, he's one of the only filmmakers that is so good at like the composition of his shots that you become inoculated to it. Yeah. You're not, you're not like taken out of the film. You don't think you're watching a film. You're like immersed in the story. So you're not like trying to look at it like a film Mm -hmm. on the first watch anyway, like here we're kind of picking it apart, but you're, you get so immersed and like taken in that I think that's like the best compliment is like, you don't really, sometimes you don't notice a thing like yeah. the technical things that happen. Yep. And speaking of uh, noticing things versus not noticing things, how good is the score? I'm glad you brought that up. I love, this is one of my favorite, favorite scores. From it's John so Williams. Good. Yeah. It's so good. Yep. Uh, what a, what, what a guy, <laughs> what a team. Uh, yeah. This is, I think, well, I really like the E.T. score a lot, too. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I think, think this might be my favorite collaboration of the films we've seen so far, but... I mean, E.T. E. is gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. it's They're very different, though, too. I feel like this score so conveys that sort of high adventure mm-hmm. thing in a way that's so perfect and not intrusive. Like, it's not in your face about it, 
but it's loud. It's loud as hell. Actually, it's a really loud score. Um, but it's it never feels overdone. Like it's not overwrought at all. No, it fit, every scene that it's that you have music, it fits. You know, it's yeah. like the Grail theme is gorgeous. The, like the father and son theme is gorgeous. But then mm-hmm. you have like the motorcycle chase, and it's that whole. I've heard that composition conducted by John Williams live. Like it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the yeah, you know, the, I, the tank mm-hmm. chase. Like the I love how it's silent for a little bit and then the music like comes in really like with a bang when the car gets stuck on the gun Mm -hmm. like that's only when it starts and then like more and more action happens and the score gets more and more tense until you fall over the cliff like it's such a progression that i love just listening to that you know outside of the movie i will listen to that and like and see the movie in my head because it's so good yeah and even that opening scene too uh i mean that opening scene is basically a silent film right like there's not a lot of dialogue that happens in that opening with young Indy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a lot of music and, and moving pictures and that's it. Yep. And, uh, that I've seen that, <laughs> I've seen that piece, uh, conducted live by John Williams. And oh, I've nice. told this story on the podcast before, but, um, when I saw John Williams, Spielberg was there introducing all the pieces and then they would play the scenes from the films on the screens after the introduction. And, um, Spielberg introduced the scene and he made us watch the entire sequence with no music. I remember you saying that. That's a long time. It's a long time. It's a long time. And then he made us watch the entire sequence again with the music and it totally lost the crowd. I felt so bad for him. Like you could tell he, he's such a nerd about that kind of stuff that you like, you could tell he was really excited about, about it, but everyone was just like, yeah, we, we know. We like, know, we know it's good. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't have to sell us on John Williams, Stephen. Like, but like, but didn't it make it so much better? Like when you watched it the second time? I it did. I mean, I think the, for me, I was just like, you could have done Jaws during the time that it took. Oh, to, <laughs> you could have done a whole nother song during the time that it took to set this up and execute it. Like, Cause they didn't I, do but, Jaws. And so that, that way, like, oh, no. yeah, that really bothered me. <laughs> I have seen Jaws conducted like the whole thing live. Uh, I want to do that. With so the bad. symphony playing the score. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, but like the, the collaboration, John Williams and Spielberg, like it's, like how amazing has that been? Gosh, yeah, I know. Over the years, and, it's incredible. Yeah, I got like weirdly emotional during Fablemans because I, I think I mentioned this on the last episode where just like, it's it's gonna be their last collaboration. Yeah, but Ugh. he he turned he's almost ninety one. We were at his um, mm-hmm. birthday kind of celebration out at Tanglewood this summer, and it was like just a huge outpouring of love, and yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, so, I mean, just yeah. I, I definitely get misty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just the best to ever do it, like, yep. hands down. And just that, I mean, it's it's like a Lennon-McCartney thing with mm-hmm. filmmaking and, and film music. Like, unmatched, I think. Like, I don't know. We I think this is a compliment, but we had this professor, this music professor in our, at, at the university in our hometown who taught film music, and he refused to teach John Williams because he thought he was overrated and it was just like okay well I mean, my uh my girlfriend slash future wife really looks up to you but if 
it was just the two of us talking, I would have the biggest eye roll and obscene hand gesture for you. <laughs> like, I don't, come on. Come no, on. You can't, you can't do anything but, like, mm. admire Sean Williams. I'm sorry. Yeah. But, I, like, you... look at all, look at the cultural phenomenons he's been associated with. Like, yeah. You, how would you call that overrated? Yeah. So he would just teach, like, Max Steiner and Bernard Herrmann. And, like, yeah, absolutely. Like, they're, they're incredible. But come on. Like, you're, <laughs> you're purposefully being obtuse. And I would argue being kind of a bad teacher because of how much of an effect he's had on the culture at large. Like, you have to study that guy. If you're studying film music, yeah, you have to study John Williams. Yeah, like, I, you know, I I like a lot of Michael Giacchino's scores. I don't love a lot of... Oh, okay, I'll use this yeah. example. I, um, I don't like Hans Zimmer kind of at all. Like, his his compositions really annoy me. <laughs> yeah, I, I do not like them. I think they're grating. I think they largely do not work divorced from their material um he is you know stuff here and there accepted i really like um lion king's score and stuff like that but by and large especially his later period like his a lot of his nolan stuff really does not work for me at all um if i were teaching a film music class i would absolutely teach Hans zimmer's music like (laughs) you have to he's such a he's such a popular you know composer right now that you can't not yeah you can't just exclude it because you don't like it yeah like you're doing a disservice to the students at that point because you have a weird hot take yeah i think he was just intimidated by john williams that's well that's the reason (laughs) yeah yeah definitely um (laughs) yeah gosh just the best. I love John yeah. Williams. So um, I actually I can't believe he didn't win for score. Then you said it was nominated for the score. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awful. Let's see. That's uh, awful. I had it pulled up. Oh, the Hollywood Reporter felt that uh, Connery and Ford deserved. Um. Academy Award nominations for this movie. Connery, I agree with. I don't know about Ford. I like yeah. Ford in this movie, but... He, yeah, he's really uh, good. Let's see. 19... I mean, it's kind of, you know, adventure movies. It's that it's not, really like, considered Oscar-worthy, I guess. Is... Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> let's see here. Uh, 1989. This is Last Crusade, Field of Dreams. <clears throat> Fabulous Baker Boys. Born on the 4th of July. John Williams was nominated twice in twice. this category. <laughs> And Little Mermaid, which one? Oh, Little Mermaid. Oh, okay. Yep. So beginning beginning of this sort of Disney Renaissance. Yep. Um. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, song best song I could see Little Mermaid. Best score mm-hmm. overall? Not sure. Yeah. Best score I, I would say this. Yeah. I would say this. I don't know the Born on the Fourth of July score, but also I think that's the second time we've seen him nominated twice in the same year. Uh, did he do it again with, uh, 1993? He did not. Okay. I was wondering if Schindler's List and Jurassic Park were also nominated. Oh, were they that close? Uh. They came out in the same year. They came, they both came out in 1993. Okay. I can't uh, imagine not nominating both then. Yeah, it wasn't, uh, it was not nominated. Um. Huh. Yeah, John Williams, the previous year. John Williams was nominated for The Witches of Eastwick and The Empire of the Sun. Nice. <laughs> Good lord. Oh, no, two years previously. But he was nominated in the year in between with The Accidental Taurus. Come on. 
teach teach John Williams, you psycho. <laughs> like exactly. Uh, yeah. Did you have anything else, Katie? Uh, I'm trying. We got off track there. Sorry. I'm trying to yeah. think. Um, really, just kind of more general praise for it. Um, I kind of want to go watch it again now after after talking yes. about it again. Same. <laughs> Which uh, means like it's a fantastic movie. Um, yes, it is. Yeah. Pretty good movie. Do we have anything about, like, the finding of the grail and... Yeah, I think... Kind of the um, meaning at the, all that meaning at the end. I think that's just such a lovely... Yeah, I, I, was, I was talking too. to my wife about this, that I think it's so interesting that... Um, I think I mentioned this on our Raiders episode, that Spielberg made these films that have very supernatural occurrences in them, which is not unusual in and of itself, but they are deeply tied to some of the oldest, uh, most, we'll say, cantankerous religious beliefs um, when it comes to being portrayed in the popular culture. And as far as I can tell, no one batted an eye about either one of these movies. (laughs) Um, And to, to, like... To be able to make films about something as personal and touchy as, like, Judaism, like, straight up, like, Jew, like, the, 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 like, Jewish Ark of the Covenant story and the Holy Grail uh, for Christianity mm-hmm. and just have everyone be like, great movies, keep doing what you're doing, like, with without taking a hard stance on anything either way, like, the way he threaded the needle with Ju- the the sort of religious aspects of both of those films is i think unparalleled like i can't, i i've never seen anyone do it the way he did it yeah and it's it's like it's supernatural and like mythic but you don't it doesn't feel really out of place either mm-hmm. with like the real the realness of the the story um i mean this one especially it, it ties into you know a belief and faith and all of that which you know indy kind of finds at the end you will he's not really shown to be a religious person he's hunting these artifacts for like a historical point of view archaeological point of view um that it kind of ties in with reuniting with his father and connecting on that level so it doesn't i don't think it feels out of place no it's not out of place and it's also not insensitive either no no to to people who would hold those beliefs to to go see them like it plays like the scene where uh you know dude ages really quickly is just like you love horror movies steven (laughs) like it definitely plays like a horror movie but it's not like it's not played for a scare oh it scares me i have i still have not (laughs) seen that scene like straight on ever right because i have like a huge skeleton phobia type okay. so i i cannot watch that scene sure uh yeah it, it it but it's not played as like a jump scare right like it doesn't come out of nowhere it's actually pretty gradual like um all things it's very considered. gradual and long taking yeah yeah well, it's a, you know like the end of raiders when everyone's melting and yeah yeah exploding but it's like it is definitely horror movie effects that were used to oh, yeah. to, to do that and so it's it's this funny thing where it's like it's not technically a horror scene but it looks like one and it is horrific like it is meant to shock um but it's not played to like just for that like it's played to show you the stakes that indy is up against yeah it explains you know 
the the high stakes of saving his father, the high stakes of choosing the right grail. It's, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure, like, when this quest started, I'm not sure if anyone really realized that you had to, like, sit in that little room if you wanted to be immortal for yeah. <laughs> forever. I'm not sure if they knew that, but um, it's, yeah, like you said, it's it serves the, the larger purpose of the story. Yeah, well, and also, I... <laughs> I mean, I guess he's a, he's a, is he a British crusader? Because my first See, they, thought they, when they he talked about him going to, they talked about him going to France, but I guess you could be a, a British knight and okay. end up in France again. Yeah. Because my thought this time watching it is, how do you know English? <laughs> you really can't think about that scene <laughs> too carefully. Yeah. Otherwise, it all falls apart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But I was for the first time ever, I was just like, wait a minute, <laughs> shouldn't shouldn't you be speaking like Spanish or French or something, like, <laughs> or at least like you know the old style of English? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like everything you say should not make a lick of sense to Indy. <laughs> I mean, I guess it might since he's a historian, but like, um, I also really love the three tests. Uh, that that present themselves i think they're really well put together like it's 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 an it's pretty short it's a lot shorter than you think it is um because the stakes are so high and it does such a great job of conveying that by like the first guy goes in and then his head comes rolling out and then um so you're like oh that first thing is like impossible to deal with anyway and then you see him get past that and then you see him fall through the floor and you kind of see what's on the other side of that. And he's hanging on and he like, he gets himself up and you're like, Oh, if he, if he falls, he's screwed. And so when he spells Jehovah or like when he figures out that in Latin, Jehovah starts with an I and he hops on the I. And then I think it's when he goes to the E or the A, his heel cracks the, the, mm-hmm. the, the rock behind him. That's such a good tense moment. Yep. And he kind of teeters there. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. I love that yep. that part. It's so it's so quick, but it's so simple because he set up so well what that means if that happens. I love how they're foreshadowed too earlier in the movie. Like they're talking about the devices. You, if the first mm-hmm. time you see the diary, you see those illustrations. You don't yeah. know what they are yet. But I love that whole progression through. And I love how it, like it really easily depicts how no one has ever gotten past that first test because he has to break through that huge cobweb. Mm, mm-hmm after going through yeah yeah and then i love the way he reveals the invisible bridge mm-hmm. it's so the cool tilt, the tilt of that camera it's so cool yeah it's such a it's such a simple visual effect too like it's it's just an optical illusion that he does in the camera but it's so uh it's just so it's so perfect for for what it is and it's so adventurous and and cool when you see him standing on nothing and then the camera yeah like you said just like pans slightly to the right and you see the the way they set up the the effect and it's just mm-hmm. it ah oh, it's so great it looks so cool <laughs> just the blending into that stone yeah yep. yeah the with the 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 matte painting and all that it's so ah oh, it's yep. so good <laughs> um but yeah i mean i i think at, Every time I watch it, too, I always have this question in my head where I'm like, is Indiana Jones immortal now? I know he's not because they take the grail over the seal. Yeah. But every time I'm just like, oh, he like, 
he drank from the Holy Grail. Like, you just buy into it, right? It's well, his just... father did, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it, it, to just, I, I don't know, like, I was watching with Kristen, and she brought up to you, she was just like, I mean, to drink from the Holy Grail would be reward enough. Like, that would just be a wild thing to say you did. <laughs> I think it only works when you're in that little, in the temple. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Although, yeah. apparently the healing properties are permanent. That's true. Fortunately. So, yeah, yeah, thank yep. God. I mean, be a much darker ending. <laughs> much darker ending. Yeah, they get <laughs> they get outside and Sean Connery just falls over dead. They're like, oh, oh. no. Uh, what I was do it find all it for? Like, uh, it's kind of heartbreaking how Indy, like, he destroys every single archaeological location that he ever goes into. Yeah. It's always left, like, in tatters, crumbled, blown up, or, you know, everything he, everything he touches. Yeah, I, I mean, he can literally blame that on an act of God, though, right? Like, <laughs> well, else it's Elsa's fault. Yeah, 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 that one was Elsa's fault. Uh, I well, think the other thing, too, is usually it's because the bad guys were there. <laughs> um, yep. So it's like, well, okay. I can and like in the in the case of Temple of Doom, like it's just like that place should probably be destroyed. Like, oh, that place definitely should be. Yeah, yeah, nothing, nothing good was happening there at all. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I love, I love the scene of them running out with that cloud of dust, like that wide shot, mm-hmm. the cloud of dust coming out of the temple. Yep. And just from there on in, it's like it's perfect. They get in their horses, they have a little chat, they, they have that lovely conversation, and then they just ride off. Yeah, right off into the sunset, into the yep. with the, the 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 horizon in the bottom third. Bottom third, yeah. <laughs> yep, because that's what it's makes a beautiful it shot with that. You know, and then the score comes up again. It's just yep. Oh great. gosh, yeah. It, it's so the color on it is so so classic. Like it's such mm-hmm. a classic western shot. I can't believe he's never made a western, just a straight up western. Yeah, I don't know. He says he wants to. So maybe that'll be his next thing. Yeah, he's doing the bullet sequel first and then after that. I guess it's not really a sequel. I don't know. Whatever. He's doing a car but it's a car chase movie which is going to be awesome. Oh, okay. Um, yep. Yep. With Bradley Cooper who <laughs> I keep saying should have been the the Indiana Jones of the the early 2000s. No. Uh, they should have recast him. <laughs> no but, recasting. Uh he he's playing Frank Bullet in whatever this thing is whatever whatever this bullet sequel reboot thing is i don't know it's not a remake of the original bullet it's according to spielberg an original new story with the same character that steve mcqueen played in bullet but the one defining feature that i know of bullet which i haven't seen uh although it's the first chapter in the new tarantino book and i'm planning on watching all those movies okay uh is the car chase through the streets of san francisco which Mm -hmm. means this is going to be a car chase movie like that's the thing that movie is known for is the car chase so i'm very excited to see what spielberg does with a car chase movie like 50 years after his first car chase movie (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure it'll be uh pretty dynamic yeah yeah um I man, I'm really excited about that. So, I think after that though, he said he wants to make a western. So, 
I, I mean, he definitely has all the like all the necessary tools for it. Yeah, it well, I mean, it would be amazing. Yeah, and also look how freaking long it took him to make a musical, even though he clearly has wanted to make a musical since like the beginning of his career. <laughs> yeah, he's still going. He has a lot left in him, I think. Yeah, yeah, and like. I know a lot of people said, oh, is he, you know, is he going to retire after Fablemans because it's sort of his memoir and stuff like that. And all the cast, all, like all the cast of the Fablemans that I've seen interviews with, they're like, he's going to die on set. Like this man is never going to stop making movies. <laughs> if it's what you love doing and, and you can keep doing it, then you might as well keep doing it. Yep. And I'm thankful for it. I just think. Yes, absolutely. I, just i uh, i don't know like i tweeted when i saw favorite like we're just we're so lucky to be alive while steven spielberg is making movies like yeah i need to get to a theater is it still in theaters uh i don't know it's not moving to streaming or anything uh not quite yet i think they're probably okay. gonna do a big like best picture push for it yeah so. i'll have to get there yeah it's good it only opened on like 600 screens too so it didn't it flopped it tanked it didn't do well at all like i said i went the night it came out and i was the only person in my showing oh yeah which was kind of awesome kind of heartbreaking like i wish there were other people there but at the same time i got to be like oh my god the whole time out loud <laughs> and not feel bad about it yep so that was nice to just be like that's jaws that's indiana jones that's this that's this john ford movie um so it was fun to do that out loud you know to no one but <laughs> um and not be bothered by anybody i love that yeah 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 and and i did get to like there's there's the scene in the in the trailer where he's like projecting the film and he's using his hands as the sort of screen. I didn't do that, but I was able to like at one point I was just like I'm going to stand up and like look at where the light is coming from and like follow it from the projector projector booth, projection booth to the screen. And like obviously I couldn't do that if there were other people in the Yeah, that's really in, cool. in the theater. So I got to do that, which was nice. I feel, I was like <laughs> I feel like Spielberg would want me to do this if I was here alone to just sort of like appreciate the inner workings of what's going on up there to make me enjoy what's going on in front of me. Oh, definitely. So yep. that was that was like an it was a really unique experience to have with a Spielberg movie, but I also am just like please go see Spielberg movies. They're good for I you. <laughs> like, I will. I will get there. Yeah. Um well, Katie, thank you so much uh, for joining me on this uh, journey through The Last Crusade. Yeah, this has been great. I've loved uh, the movie. I love talking about it. So, Yeah, um, we have some, we, we put the, the, the question to you guys, uh, you know, send us your thoughts. And uh, surprise, we got more uh, responses than we did for both Color Purple and Empire of the Sun combined. <laughs> um so uh at hood cp says the first film i saw at a cinema in japan i knew about 10 words of japanese uh but the audio was the original english audio track but i was very distracted by the subtitles and didn't pay attention but i got uh excited when one of the 10 words i knew actually appeared it's my favorite indiana jones film uh green shirt who was on for our temple of doom episode says uh the best of the trilogy fight me they absolutely knew what they were making by this point and how to execute on it. Plus the best character arc for Indy, which is absolutely true. Uh, mm-hmm. At Designer Doe uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> says, spoilers, it's awesome. Um, at Don't Panic Flip just said, sorry, son, they got us, which is the best line in the film. <laughs> um, 
uh, at Foxy Snob said, while Temple is probably my favorite, as it was my most watched as a kid, Crusade is arguably the better film. Uh, Ford and Connery have such amazing chemistry, and the fireplace scene is one of my top movie scenes ever and always makes me laugh. Uh, and she also posted the gif of the <laughs> them saying, like, Dad, what? Dad, what? And just <laughs> their their heads turning back and forth, which is a, That's an amazing a scene, really yeah. good gag, yeah. <laughs> Um, and then at Arg, RJ says, I've got a couple. Spielberg recruited Connery for two reasons. One, who would be a better dad for Indy than James Bond himself. Uh, two, Spielberg missed out on a chance to direct a Bond film, and Connery was his favorite. Three, in an interview in the late 80s, uh, Ford said Connery could still charm anyone. And absolutely true, uh, based on on this uh, character dynamic that he has with, with Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, would you like to tell people how to get in touch with you if they want, or if you don't have to if you don't want to? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I kind of read mostly. I don't post that much, but I sure. am at Designer Doe. So spoilers. I liked the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can find me there. Uh, great. Um, you can find me at MJ Smith eight nine one. You can find Sarah, who will be back to talk about Hook, um, for the last episode of our Spielberg season. So. Uh, be on the lookout for a new poll um, to determine what we're doing next. Uh, you will not, however, have the option to do Spielberg season two. We're going to take breaks between the Spielberg seasons. That way you guys aren't just making us marathon all the uh, Spielberg movies back to back to back. Uh, as much as we love the guy, I feel like that would make us pretty burnt out. Um, but you can find Sarah on Twitter at Sarah Buttery, S-A-R-A-H-B-U-D-D-E-R-Y. Um, you can find the show on Twitter at Jaws for a Minute. Uh, or if you're not on social media, you can email us at Jaws for a Minute at gmail.com. Oh, you can find us on uh, Instagram at Jaws for a Minute as well. You can find me on Instagram at MJSmith891. Uh, and you can find Sarah at Sarah underscore Buttery. Um, in the bios for the show social medias, you will find link trees that have uh, links so you can buy uh, merch for TeePublic or Redbubble. Keep an eye on those if you've been wanting merch uh, or want merch for Christmas or whatever holidays you celebrate. Um, they usually have pretty big sales around this time on both storefronts, so keep an eye out for that if you need something for your wish list or if you want to get something for someone. Um, you can buy our theme song through Bandcamp, um, which is... Uh, written and performed by Kristen Falls, who is my wife. And if you like our logos or our theme song, you can listen to us speak with Alex and Kristen, the minds behind our logos and theme song respectively, um, on our Patreon page. Uh, that was our November um, patron episode. And it was this sort of two and a half hour conversation about the nature of creating, uh, which we didn't know was gonna be sort of the overarching theme, but it was a really fun conversation. Uh, you can support us on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash jaws for a minute um, and shout out to our uh, patrons jack cameron callum griff mike katie rachel andrew blake chris carrie eric and the uncut gems podcast thank you guys so much for supporting the show um, if you would like to support the show with just a donation uh, you can find the uh, link to our coffee page um, and you can just donate i think it's a three dollar minimum donation uh, if you're a first time donor uh you can get entered to win a piece of lj fam merch if you've previously donated in the past you are in the running until you win basically um however our patreon page is the same price as our coffee page 
and you get uh, a monthly bonus episode. We've done an interview with Jack Cooper, our resident shark boy, uh, about some uh, findings he, he that he recently did regarding Megalodon, uh, full-length Jaws commentary, and the aforementioned um, conversations with Alex and Kristen. And then in December, we have a uh, an episode about Spielberg and his relationship to Japan and uh, specifically World War II Japan with 1941 and Empire of the Sun with uh, Japanese historian uh, Christopher Hood. So, um, yeah, you can find all that on our Patreon page. Um, otherwise, thank you guys for listening. If you want to support the show without monetary uh, donation, um, especially because I know it's December and, you know, a lot of holiday shopping going on money's just kind of tight in general uh please rate the show on your podcatcher choice and share it with someone you think might like it um that would be uh great for us it helps you know boost our visibility and that's all you guys like the reason we have the show and keep doing it is all because of you um and if you want to see what our kind of spotify rap look like you can check our our twitter and i think our instagram to see sort of the stats that you guys made happen for the end of the year so uh, thank you guys. We have one more episode for the rest of the year, and then uh, we might take a little more time off. I'm not sure. Uh, but until next time, it's Jaws O'Clock somewhere.